over the course of this two-year relationship, how much money did this fraudster steal from you? He stole one million eighty thousand seven hundred sixty-two dollars. Introducing the Protectors, inside criminal minds from around the world. Presented by the IAFCI, leaders in safeguarding consumers from fraud and scams for more than 50 years. And now your hosts, International President Mark Solomon and Chairman of the Board Michael Carroll. Hello everybody, this is Mike Carroll, International Chairman of the International Association of Financial Crimes Investigators. I am with Mark Solomon, our international president. Mark, how you doing today? Mr. Carroll, happy holidays. This is our 58th episode and wow. our last one in 2023. So excited to finish the year off strong with an incredible speaker and topic today. Somebody I got to meet uh, at some training and we chatted and uh, I said, we would love to have you on the show. And she's been uh, gracious enough to, to be with us today. So Mike, any uh, you want to say anything quick to our listeners uh, before we head into 2024? Yeah, you know, Mark, last two episodes, we talked about safety uh, as far as uh, when you're out shopping, protecting the mail, when you when you get a package delivered, how to pick it up right away. And uh, so I thought it'd been really good. You know, the holiday season's not all cheer, right? I mean, a lot of people are lonely during this time of year. So I think our next guest and the topic can relate to the holiday season as far as uh, not all holiday cheer. Yeah, and this is uh, such a difficult story to hear, but also very inspiring of what our next guest has done since being targeted. Uh, And I'm really excited. And Mike, if you'll let me do the honors, we'll bring her on right now. Go right ahead, Mark. All right. So folks, our next guest is a victim's advocate, founder of the Woman Behind the Smile Incorporated. She's the director of the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams, or SCARS. And she is also a victim of a romance scam. She is a best-selling author, international speaker, entrepreneur, and podcast host. In her book, The Woman Behind the Smile, she shares her personal experience with love that turned into betrayal and financial disaster, and she removes the mask of shame and shows others how to do the same. Many of us having something, something we're hiding, something we're ashamed of, something that uh, through no fault of our own or through our own making keeps us hidden from each other and the world. Her background is diverse from working as a paralegal and senior bank branch manager to being a U.S. Air Force intelligence officer serving at the Pentagon and the Defense Intelligence Agency. She has spoken on the Dr. Oz Show, CBS This Morning, the Mel Robbins Show, the Tamron Hall Show, and so many others. We'd like to welcome to the show author Debbie Montgomery Johnson. Thank you so much, Mark and Mike. I really appreciate you having me tonight. Thank you, Debbie. And, and again, for our audience, I, I don't believe in coincidences. And, and we actually got to meet in person down at NASDAQ uh, a couple months ago uh, when there was a human trafficking conference going on. And uh, you and I both got there early. We were in the waiting room ready to go into the training session. And uh, we got to talking and, and you shared your story with me. And, and I can't tell you how much it moved me. And I am so glad uh, that you're here tonight and, and going to be able to share this with our uh, listeners. Again, thank you, Mark. You were the very first person that I met there, and I wasn't sure what to expect, 
but we hit it off right away, and that made my being there so much more comfortable. Hey, Debbie, like Mark said, it, it's great to have you on our program to tell your story. Um, can we just start with that? How did this all begin? When, how long ago, and uh, how did you first meet this individual? Well, it was 2010. It was April 8th, 2010, and I had gotten home from my – actually, was at a meeting in the morning, and I got a phone call from my oldest son, and the call went like this. It said, Mom, Dad just died. I'm coming home to take mm. care of everything. Mm, so sorry. My husband had left the night before on a business trip, and I basically just sort of kicked him out the door the night before and said, I'll see you when you get home and have a good trip. And when my son called, he was only 23 years old. And when I heard that, my husband had not been sick. He had just gone out on a business trip, was going to be home, and he died of a sudden heart attack. He woke up that morning and was talking to someone in the hotel, said, here's my car keys, please go put my stuff in the car, call 911, I'm having a heart attack. And that phone call just changed my life, obviously, in a minute. I listened to that. It was a voice message because I was in a meeting. And I listened to that call over and over, and then I I got a call from my mother and father. And when Lou died, he was over on the west coast of Florida. I live on the east coast of Florida. My parents were 25 minutes away. So they actually did the hard hitting after that. They went over and they identified the body, and they did everything that needed to be done. And so when Lou left the night before, I never saw him again. And. Just to put us in perspective, we were both military officers. And for me, it was like he'd gone on a temporary duty, a TDY, went on a trip, and just was forgetting to call me. And that's what it was for the first six months after he died, because, again, I didn't see him. We had the funeral, uh, a great memorial service, but there was no closure, so to speak, to actually seeing him gone. And that was tough. Mm -hmm. Debbie, we are so sorry for your loss, and and yes, and um, you know, thank you both for your service uh, to our country, and and I could only imagine, you know, the pain and suffering that you were going through after the loss of your husband, and you know, I, I want to bring that up because I think that's very important for our listeners to understand. You know, when it comes to romance scams or maybe uh, investment schemes or other frauds that are going out there, but especially with romance. You know, a lot of times the the victims that we've spoken to and interviewed, um, they have suffered a, a tragic loss. It's either a death in the family or a loved one, a spouse, or or maybe there's a, a divorce, you know, where there's a lot of trauma and, and pain going on when they get initiated into this romance scam. And I don't know if you could share what your feelings were when you started this online relationship. Well, for me, it wasn't... I think it actually came about because my friends had said, you're working too hard. I, was, I had to run Lou's company. He had a company. I was running that. I was, had my own day job, and all I was doing was working. The only time I had by myself was between midnight and 4 a.m., and at that point, I was, I was getting mad at Lou for dying, which seems silly that you get mad at someone for dying, but it changed all of our plans because I was 51, almost 52. He was only 56, and we had a lifetime planned ahead of us. So I was so busy, I, I really didn't have a chance to grieve what had happened because I had to learn how to run his company. We had four children. Only one was at home at the time. One was in college and then two were in the military. And so I really was running on anxiety, on energy, on you name it, just to keep going. And about six months in, my girlfriend said, you need a life. 
And to them, it meant you need something more than just working. And my way of control at that point was going swimming. I would leave one job in the middle of the day, go to the YMCA and go swimming, come home and start working again. And I was, I don't even know how to say it. I, I wasn't really eating well. I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't necessarily lonely, but I really did miss having someone to talk to. And right. the other thing was that I didn't fit into any groups anymore. I didn't fit into the family group at church. I didn't want to be called a widow. I didn't want to be called single. I'd been married almost 26 years. And so it was a very odd time in my life. But I did what I did, and I did it as best I could. So, Debbie, the initial contact or meeting with this individual wasn't necessarily a romance. It was just you were kind of looking for a friendship with somebody, somebody that you can talk to? It was a friendship, and maybe it was a romance kind of a thing, but after being married for so many years, it was quite daunting for me to start dating. Uh, All the anxiety of being a teenager came back after all those years, you know, not pretty enough, not smart enough, not all those enoughs, even though I'd had an extraordinary working career and I had four fabulous children. I still had those anxieties of, you know, why I have to put myself out there again. And so it started off, I was looking for someone that was around my age, maybe four or five years older, or someone that was intelligent, someone that was well-educated. My husband was a brilliant guy. And I think I was looking to kind of replace him in a way, but someone a little bit different. Because we all know after 26 years, you've got your ups and downs in your marriage. And so I, I was looking for someone that I could talk to, someone that I could bounce my business ideas off of, and someone that would make me feel like I was a teenager again and all those endorphins rushing in to you know, make you feel like you're falling in love. So. And Debbie, did you meet this person uh, on a dating site or was it through social media? Uh, how did you guys meet? We actually, I had gone to a faith-based dating site. One that I had friends that had met their significant others on, one that I had looked into. And I, I didn't do it haphazardly. I was very careful in what I was looking for. And I was very surprised, actually, at the, the men that were online. And I, you guys might find this interesting. I, I saw guys that had wife, what I call wife beater t-shirts. So they weren't the guys that I was looking for. They were the guys that were hanging out on the motorcycles with other women in the pictures. And I'm thinking, if this is what's out there for the 50 to 60-year-olds, I'm not interested. Because, I, like I said, my husband was very well-versed, very well-read. He was a briefer at the uh, Pentagon for the chief of staff of the Air Force. And so I had pretty high standards. And this gentleman, when he came across online, he was international businessman. He was from London. And those attracted me because I was thinking, well, I have a company. I've been overseas. I've lived overseas. And I met him on the dating site. And that was, oh, gosh, I don't know how to say this one. But I was only on the dating site for a short time to move ahead because he had he was supposedly in Texas in, I think, Houston at the time. And he had gotten a job overseas and was going to be leaving. So we had moved off the dating site rather quickly to uh, an app called Yahoo Chat, which to me was very fun. It was new. I'd never been on it before. It was instant messaging. And I found that writing was an easier way for me to get to know 
him versus speaking on the phone or in person, which back then, remember, we, we didn't have the FaceTime and the, and the Zoom and the things that we have today. So I found it very therapeutic to write my feelings out to him and to talk about my family, and it was, it was really extraordinary. And actually, I've got 4,000 pages of journal of those conversations, which I cut and paste into an online journal, and I published them in, my, in a book as family history. So. Wow. Something that triggered me when you said that was how therapeutic it was. And obviously, you were going through a very difficult and emotional situation with the death of your husband. And, you know, the fact that, you know, this person and you connected, you know, I th- we've talked and this person was very well-spoken, articulate, very similar to your husband. And could you explain, you know, did that make this uh, seem more real or authentic that this person, you know, that there was just a genuine interest between the two of you looking to help one another? We definitely had similar interests, which we found out through the writing process. And, and it was interesting, as a former Air Force Intel officer, I actually used the Yahoo chat between him and his sister. I got to know his sister, quote-unquote, and his son, his attorney. There were multiple people in this whole story. And I would use my Yahoo chats when I was talking to each one of them to find out more about him and I would use my chats with him to find out about them, kind of put the whole family story together because I love family and I would do almost anything for my family. And within weeks, he and the, his sister all became my family. And it came through that writing process and asking questions and seeing pictures. We talked about the holidays a little bit and how you've got to be careful during this period of time, but he sent me pictures of their Christmas uh, at home and the family dog and things like that, again, to bring me into his family. And I did the same with mine. I, he became part of my family rather quickly, or at least part of my life, not necessarily my kids. Debbie, let me just go back to what you said before about meeting this person on a faith-based uh, dating site. Did that make you feel more comfortable with him, maybe let your guard down just a little, than meeting him on a public you know, dating site? Did that come into play at all? It certainly did. It actually made me feel very safe because, again, I'd been married for so long, I wasn't ready for an in-person relationship. And so it was a, it was a safe platform. It was a safe, you know, he, he wasn't going to actually be here right away so I could get to know him a little bit before he was supposed to get here. So, Debbie, two red flags you just brought up, and I think they're very important, is one is that this fraudster got you off the site and got an alternate way of communicating with you, which was still text messaging. So how much is that a significant issue when criminals are targeting victims? It's a huge red flag to me now. Back then, it was just something comfortable. But if they move you off of a safe site to WhatsApp or Yahoo Chat or something like that that's not regulated, really, or not watched as, as carefully, that's a huge red flag right now. Yeah. And and then the second point I want our listeners to understand is, you know, it was kind of a unique situation with you where you weren't looking for uh, in-person type uh, friendship or relationship. You felt more comfortable typing uh, your feelings. But, you know, a lot has changed. Uh, this was back in 2010. And now technology has changed so much. So now we have cameras, we have FaceTime, we have multiple ways to see people in person. Um, but the fraudster really doesn't want to have you see them in person. Is that correct? 
That's absolutely true. The criminals, and I'm calling them criminals versus fraudsters or scammers because they are, it's a criminal activity. And they don't want to show their faces, although there are ways now that, that they can. So you've got to, even on a video, you've got to be very careful to not fall prey to whatever you're looking at. And I, I equate it now, after all the years of the pandemic and watching Netflix, is I watch a lot of shows that are based in Europe or, or someplace, and they're speaking Norwegian, they're speaking Finnish, they're speaking some other language, but because we have the English version on, my brain is saying they're speaking English, when if you're looking right. at their lips, they're really not. So it's very easy for the, for the criminals, the scammers, to show you a video, and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, he's, he's speaking English, and he's American, or he's European, or whatever, and he may actually not be. I work with support victims. I support victims who have actually said, I saw him on a video, and we looked at it and said, that's not actually him speaking on the video. So you've got to be careful, but it's a good place to go first off is to get him on that phone and get a picture. I was very disappointed all those years to not actually see him. I talked to him a few times. He had a British accent that kind of led into the story because he was supposedly from London. But I was disappointed that I couldn't ever see him and couldn't see his family throughout. And this was two years. It was a two-year relationship. Hey, Debbie, let me ask you, just for our listeners, and maybe even, who knows, somebody might be talking to somebody online right now that they met online. Can you give like a quick profile of this person? And it seems to be this criminal seems to match other suspects or criminals that have taken people for these romance scams. Uh, He's international. He travels. Can you tell us, was this person very religious? Is he indicating everything that you might have said, that where you lost your husband, he might have lost his wife? Uh, Was he sending you gifts at the beginning? That's an an interesting uh, interesting thing to think about because, yes, he he was a widower. Uh, Now, the things that I'm telling you, I saw on his profile, which made me very comfortable because in the dating process, I found that the guys that had lost their wives seemed to be a little bit more relatable to me than the guys that were divorced. And I, I always said that because the guys that were divorced brought the extra baggage along with them and the guys that had lost a wife, like I had lost a spouse, you know, there was no one else there to take up their time or whatever. So he had a son. It was a younger son. He professed his faith. And it was a, again, it was a faith-based site, which made me think that there would be guys there that had similar religious backgrounds or similar thoughts or that kind of thing. Similar spirituality didn't necessarily have to be the certain faith, but it, their spirituality. And we had a lot of spiritual conversations through the two years. We talked about a lot of things, and especially after you've lost a spouse. You know, you've got to believe, well, I do, in an afterlife and families are forever and, and those things which are very special. So it was comforting to know that he believed in God. Mm. That helped me out. It's very interesting, too. Uh, his job was moving hardwood trees. He was a contractor for a company that moved trees. And he was, the job was in Malaysia, moving trees to India. I happened to have investments in hardwood trees in Costa Rica. He didn't know that at the time. But when I was doing my, what I called my due diligence in looking him up, looking up the company website, and I saw that, that made me, again, more comfortable. We had something to talk about. I could kind of understand what he was doing. But when I called down there 
they said they didn't have anybody named Eric Cole working for them. And I, that was a little odd to me, but then I justified because I asked him about it. He was an international contractor, and I'm thinking, okay, well, he doesn't actually work for them. He works with them, along with them. So that's another thing to be careful about when you've got these contractors. That's another, mm-hmm. another kind of red flag is that they're international, they're contractors, they aren't based here in the States, they're somewhere. And he did a lot of traveling, uh, which for me that was very intriguing because I wanted that international aspect of the, of the relationship. And early on he said, if this progresses, would you be willing to move? i.e., would you move to London? And I'm thinking, right. well, sure. My, my kids are almost all grown up. <laughs> sure, I'd be willing to do that. So. And Debbie, you know, you brought up a good point, too, about relationships. You said you're, you're I'm married close to 28 years now myself. And you know what? No relationship's perfect. But it seems when you talk to people that have been targeted and victimized, like everything just synced up. Everything was perfect. There was no arguments. Anything that you liked, he liked. And, you know, anything that he liked, she liked. And, you know, to me, it's almost like they're grooming the victim, you know, to just make that deeper connection. And, you know, because they're trying to do it as quick as possible to, to gain your trust in them. Well, there's definitely a psychology to the scam, and he, he knew some of my triggers. He knew that I loved my family. He knew that I was worried about, about money, not necessarily worried, but it's interesting. Our, our only squabbles were about his ask for the money at the very beginning because he had said the first time was a very it was a little bit of money where he wanted me to get one of his buddies onto the dating site and I thought well sure the more men the merrier especially after seeing all the pictures that I'd seen of guys that weren't guys for me and so that was the first tell would I be willing to give a little bit of money and then when he asked for the next amount of money it was for a power of attorney again he was going to be paid a lot of money he was coming back here to the states they wanted me to be involved in setting up accounts here at the states i needed to have a power of attorney i knew how to do that from my paralegal days but this was an international power of attorney which was a little more expensive and i'm thinking "Mm, i'm not quite sure about this and when he asked me to go through western union that kind of stopped me for a moment because I was a former banker. I didn't like Western Union. I thought it was kind of not the way to go. But because I wanted to help him, I figured it out, and I went to the local grocery store. And they asked me certain questions, but they never pushed it. They've gotten in trouble since then uh, with not training their personnel to actually ask the right, right questions to screen who are these people going to. So. That was a bone of contention for me initially because I was sending money to one of his associates. And I looked at that name thinking, ooh, this is kind of an odd name. And it was going to Malaysia. But he always had a plausible answer to my objections. Like, my friend lives over there. He knows the guys at the, at the, the Western Union store. He can get the money for me faster than if I try to do it myself. I wasn't looking to have someone scam me. I, wa- I had never heard of that right. before. And so I was willing to, to put up with that and to say to the Western Union folks, yes, this is going to my boyfriend. I know who this person is. Um, so, yeah, there are things that I did that I, in my banking mode, would not have done. 
But because I felt like he was family at that point, and again, I would do almost anything for family, especially back then, I was willing to do it, and I was willing to get over the little tiff that we had over the initial ask. And Debbie, you said that uh, right off the bat he started asking you for money. You mentioned that he wanted to get his friends on a dating site. Was that relatively quick? Within a couple of weeks of, of being on the dating site. Wow. Yeah, he asked me he asked me for that. And it was because his friend was an international engineer and he wasn't in town. Again, I wasn't looking to have someone take advantage of me. Right. And exactly. so when he when he asked, I was like, "Sure." But I sent a check in. I sent a check into the dating site. And uh this is high tech back then, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, times have changed. Right now, you could do uh, Venmo, this and that, you and sell it. Uh, <laughs> is, yeah, sell it. Yeah. So, so Debbie, I found that interesting. Where you said the only time where there was some tension in the relationship was centered around giving money, and I'm just wondering if that would be a key tip off to other people that are involved in an online relationship and everything's going fine, but then it gets you know maybe he's being a little forceful or she's being a little forceful to send money. Did you see that in your situation? I'm not one that is very contentious to begin with, and so I try to keep things as level as possible. Now, when the money started to be an issue, uh, he explained to me why he was asking me for the ask. He also said that he would pay me back, and he was going to pay me back really quickly as soon as he got back here. There would be interest added to it, and that was always the case. It was more of a, of a loan. Uh, as we looked at our relationship, as a, it was a personal thing, but it was also a business relationship because, again, I had a company. He had a company. We talked about our businesses. We talked about business plans. We talked about those things. And I also understand as a business owner that sometimes you don't get paid until after the job is done. And in his case, we were waiting for his job to be done. And unfortunately, he kept having one problem after another. And that got irritating, but I couldn't do anything about those. I had no control over the delays and the customs tariffs and those things. So again, I'm looking at a guy that's overseas in Malaysia. I don't quite understand the whole international trade part of it, even though I have lived overseas, I have a company. There were things that... Even Google wouldn't tell me, you know, what a, right. what a customs tariff was. So I had to trust him. And I, at one point in probably, I don't know how much money I had given to him. Uh, I kept meticulous records, and I didn't know how much until after the fact. But I probably thought, if I stop now, I've lost everything. So we call it chasing the money now in the business. It's like one more time just one more time and it'll be over. And that was the promise to me. This one last time, Deb, and then I promise I'll be there. And so that's where the ups and downs emotionally came from, where it was the anticipation of this is the last time and then, oops, something happens. Right. It was a very, very emotional roller coaster. Sure. So, Debbie, it seems like, you know, for the relationship part of this, everything was fine. Every, you know, the only time it got maybe uh, difficult or tense, you know, would be around the money. Was there any other issues or any other things that he was trying to do with your social life or with your family? Anything that you uh, observed? Well, one more thing on the money part is that if I was having trouble at the bank, 
uh, it was always very speedy. It was always intense, you know, when he wanted me to, to send him something, it was like, please do it quickly. And he would follow up. And if I was at the bank, and again, I'm a former banker, so I knew my way around right. the banks pretty well. And I had bank managers that I worked better with than others. And so I would get there and, and they, they were part of the story. They really knew what was going on. But that was un- uncomfortable for me to have him push me about that. And the only other time that I recall uh, having an issue with him is my boys, my older boys would always say, Mom, you know, don't, don't, don't. And when they start saying don't, 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 I'm like, okay, so I don't want to be telling you about this anymore because our relationship brought me great joy, if if you can understand that. I didn't have him here in person, but it gave me someone to talk to. And it was really, he became, like I said, he became my family. And so when my oldest, second oldest son came to visit one time, he intercepted a message on my computer. And he just went nuts and was so angry and got online. It was, it was probably a Yahoo chat, which he could get online and start blasting back to Eric. And I saw that and got very upset at my son because I was like, I didn't raise you to be so rude. And that actually led to one of our very first phone calls where I heard that British accent, but I heard a very distressed young man, and I had to explain to my boyfriend why my son was so rude. But he wanted to keep me away from the boys after that and not say anything to the boys after that, which is a key part of this is to keep you from talking to friends and family about what's going on. Deborah, I was going to ask you that. What about your friends and other family members? Did you kind of shut them out too? Except for my mom and dad, because they were real excited about this from the very beginning when I mentioned to my mom, I figured she'd be the biggest skeptic of all about online dating. It turned out one of her best friends in her 80s had met her husband that way. So my mom was really, she was in on this whole thing. My dad, he'll tell you now that he was a little skeptical at first, but when it went on for two years, he's like, couldn't possibly be anything wrong with this. Um, My friends... Yeah, I started to back away from my friends, and one of my close friends today said she had to step back because she didn't want me to put her out of my life. She she felt like she got to the point where it was either him or her, and at the time, I was really into him, and she would have gone by the wayside at the moment. So it's a, it's a very difficult thing. Because he'd become what I say, he became my life. I didn't want anybody else distraction. I, I did my work. I went to work. I told my friends a little bit about They were excited. They're like, when's he coming? When's he coming? And when he was going to come and then something happened, there, there was a little bit of contention there because you get so excited about them coming. And I even made hotel reservations for the holidays for his son, for his sister. And then all of a sudden I get this message saying, well, we can't come. Debbie, I just wanted to ask you something about what you just said about the criminal saying that uh, they were going to come visit or you're making reservations for his son and his sister, and then an emergency came up. I'm just curious, what kind of emergency? Because we probably heard these from other victims of these types of scams, but what would he tell you if he was planning to come visit or a family member was going to come visit? What was the story of why they couldn't make it, why they couldn't be there? There were, there were a lot of emergencies. A lot of things came up. It could be a customs tariff or something was going on at the port and, and they got held up 
with shipping the trees over to uh, from Malaysia to India. There could have been, there was a, a bike accident at one point. I think it might have been his son. His attorney's daughter had a miscarriage. He ended up in the hospital. Uh, oh gosh, I look back now and there are so many things, so many illnesses, and again things that were happening over in the Far East and those diseases that we wouldn't have necessarily, but the malaria and all that. And I'm, it was very exhausting uh, trying to figure out what is really going on. And, and it, was, it was very emotional because I worried about, was he going to die or was he going to be thrown in jail? And it was a roller coaster of mm-hmm. things that happened throughout those two years. And Debbie, for our listeners, over the course of this two-year relationship, how much money did this fraudster steal from you? He stole one million eighty thousand seven hundred sixty-two dollars. Wow! And I can hear the vacuum, <laughs> the suckers yeah, right there. Yeah, yeah, I didn't. I didn't it, have a million dollars. Okay, and this is important too. I didn't have a million dollars in the bank. I found it. I sold investments. I sold jewelry. I, oh my gosh, I came up with it somehow. And it's money that I wish was in the bank, but, and I didn't do it alone because his sister was doing it also. At least that was the story. And I think that's what kept me going is that her name was Mary, supposedly. Mary was doing half. Mary was selling jewelry. Mary was selling investments. Mary was selling things around her home. And so she and I would be chatting about what we were doing to help him. So it was, there was more than me, you know, and it was like I had this, a buddy helping me out here. And unfortunately, that was part of the scam too. And people don't realize too, the sophistication of this scheme. And we've heard it from many others about the different actors. I mean, these fraudsters, if they made a movie, they'd probably win Academy Award because they're so convincing. Their script is down pat. They're doing this not only to one victim a day, they could be doing it to two or three or four or five. And people have a hard time saying, how can you be victimized? But they're so good at what they do. They're so convincing. They have an answer for everything. The professionals. And they are. They're professional actors. And, you know, we've seen it from all walks of life. I mean, uh, chiefs of police, former police officers, agents, teachers, lawyers, um, you know, intelligence officers like yourself, people in the financial industry. And, you know, people can't understand it, but they're just really good at what they do. They take advantage of vulnerabilities or uh, tragedies. And then, you know, like I said, to me, these are some of the most evil people in the world that could do this. And that leads me into this next section, Debbie. Can you tell us how you found out that you were involved in this romance scam? Sure. One day, it was actually September 10th, 2012, he came online and asked me about how I felt about forgiveness. And it wasn't an unusual thing because we'd had many spiritual discussions over the last two years. But I went into my forgiveness chat, and it lasted for quite a long time, and then we got disconnected. And the disconnect was not an unusual thing either. But when he came back later that afternoon, he he asked me again, he goes, can we revisit our conversation of this morning? And, And we did. And then I finally said, Eric, did I do something wrong? Why are we talking about forgiveness? And he said to me, it was, again, through Yahoo message here, Yahoo chat. He said, I have something to tell you, and it's going to hurt you. 
And I'm thinking, why are you going to hurt me? You don't need to do that. He says, I have something to confess. And when I heard that, I had heard that once in my marriage, and it, it wasn't a happy thing. And I just got this feeling in my gut that this is not going to be good. He goes, I have to confess to you that this has all been a scam. And when I saw those words, I'm thinking, you're lying. What are you talking about? This is a scam. What about Mary and Kenny and, and all the money I've sent you? What about that? And I said, you're lying to me. And he goes, no, I'm not. I said, then you need to prove it. You need to prove that you're not lying now. And that's when he says, there's a small camera on Yahoo Chat, and I'm going to come on live. And I'm thinking, for two years I've asked you to come on in person, and I've I was flabbergasted. So I'm sitting here, visualize, I've got two screens on my computer. I'm looking at my screensaver of my handsome Brit, and in the corner of my computer pops up this little camera, and now I'm looking at this dark-haired, dark-eyed, dark-skinned young man with a big smile on his face. And it's mm. like I hit a brick wall. I, I was, must have. It was awful. Well, I mean, the smile on his face doesn't seem like something he's he's sorry for. I mean... No, he wanted to keep it going. He, and I'm like, what? He said, I want to keep this going. And I was like, you've just scammed me out of a million dollars. And I, I'm, I'm, all I want to know is how, how did he do it and why did he do it? Because in an instant, all my training as an intelligence officer, as a banker, as a paralegal, as a, an American, you know, I'm thinking the FBI can catch him. I've got to figure out how he did this. And I kept him engaged. I didn't completely disconnect because I'm thinking, I'm going to try to catch him. I'm going to try to turn him in. Right. And that day, did he indicate why he came forward to you and told you who he really was? Did he say why he wanted to do that that day? He did. He said that he couldn't do it anymore. And this could be part of the scam, too, and this is definitely a red flag these days. Is if they want to continue the relationship, they're still trying to get something out of you. Uh, at the time, I didn't think so. At the time, I felt like maybe a little bit of my goodness had rubbed off, and he did have a conscience and wanted to just get it out there, because he asked me not to turn him in. He said he's taking care of his siblings, and he really didn't want them to find out. He understood if I did try to turn him in, but he didn't want me to. And I didn't know what to say at that point. I, I, all I wanted to really do was keep him engaged go to the FBI, try to turn him in. And I actually did that the next day. I, I, as soon as I hung up with him, I called my mother and dad. Because this is part of the story about I didn't say earlier, is that I got my parents involved uh, to the tune of $100,000. And that's the greatest regret I have in this whole thing. For me, the whole experience has been priceless, but that $100,000 to my parents, just it, it tore my heart out. Uh, I have since paid them back multiple times, but to call them and tell them what had happened and to have them come right over, they, they hadn't done that since Lou died, and they had come over the day after Lou died. So they were terribly concerned about me at that point just because, and this is the interesting part for me, if he had not confessed that way, if I had not seen him and he had just fallen off the face of the earth like most of them do, I would have felt worse than when Lou died because now I had lost somebody again and I was out a lot of money. So in a way, I was grateful that he confessed in a way. But it, it, it also that, put yeah. closure to this one.
where I said before I didn't have closure when Lou died. I had closure for this one. And when I work with victims and survivors today, I'm like, you guys, you don't need a picture of him. This is him. This is your scammer. This is because it's not a he, it's them. It's organized crime. It's, It's a bunch of criminals that are trained in universities around the world, typically Nigeria, Ghana. But they know what they're doing. And if they could do it for good, they'd be phenomenal. But they do it for bad, and they hurt people from the heart in. Yep. And Debbie, I, I tell you, I could see right now we're going to have to bring you back on for a second uh, episode because, you know, the whole thing we haven't even explored yet is the victim shaming of all this and, you know, how the victim themselves feel like, you know, they're uh, stupid or, you know, they should have realized this or, you know, and then even the way we use some of our terms when it comes to uh, people that have been targeted with these scams you know, oh, you fell for it, you know, you got scammed. And that's a whole nother story. But, you know, I also want prosecutors to hear this, our listeners is, you know, when we're looking at a financial crime, in this case, it goes way beyond the financial losses. It's also the emotional loss, you know, the the, the embarrassment that a victim feels. It could be other family members that assisted in, you know, and had money stolen as well. So there's so much behind that. I really appreciate you bringing up the forgiveness part and and the survivor part because I am working a lot with survivors. But the most important thing to know as a survivor of this is that you're not alone and you need to forgive yourself because a lot of people out there are going to make you feel bad for what you've done and you didn't do it. The only thing that you did wrong, the only thing that I did wrong is that I said hello I engaged with a fellow that a group that turned out to be a bunch of criminals. Don't blame yourself. You're not alone in this. It's important that people around you are supportive of you, and they may not understand. You don't have to tell them the whole story. They just need to know that you're a good person, that you had a good heart, and that you were taken advantage of. And, and this whole scenario, the whole scamming thing, it affects you, it affects your family, your, your children, your parents, your friends. It affects our whole society because we start blaming each other, thinking, well, that was really stupid of you. It wasn't stupid of me. It wasn't stupid of the many men and women that, that I work with uh, as a director of SCARS, the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams. It it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your age. Everybody's going to be taken by somebody at some point in their lifetime. And many times it's someone that's part of your family. And in this particular case, I felt like he was family. And that hurts the most because they just break your heart. And they also rip out the trust you have in other humans. And that's a very difficult thing for those of us that are kind-hearted. So forgive right. yourself first and then give yourself grace and understand that you were manipulated. And I hated that word. I hated the FBI telling me that I was a victim, but I was. It was a perfect storm for me, the wrong time for me. But I encourage anyone that's been taken advantage of like this to report it, not to get the money back, but just to put the process back in the place where you can get control over something in your life. And don't let other people put you down because... You and I are good people, and a bad thing has happened, but that's life. It doesn't define you. It was a misstep, 
and we just have to make something positive out of it and speak up. That's where the woman behind the smile came from. My friends wanted me to stand up and speak up and tell people to beware and be aware of what's out there because it's all around us, everywhere. Debbie, that is great information. We need more people like you out there to help those that get caught up in these types of uh, scams. Just real quick, just to go back to something you said about the money. I mean, I know you mentioned that you wired a lot of the money to the criminal. Is that something that you looked into trying to get some of that money back from a wire service? The only money that I've gotten back actually came out of that Western Union settlement, and it was a small fraction of the money that I lost. Now, most of my my things were done through wire transfers, and there was too much time. I know today that they're able to claw back some of the cryptocurrency and the things you yeah. know that that went on. But back in my days, I wasn't able to do it. Yeah, like Mark said, technology today might have helped back then, trying to get some of the funds back. But what I did find interesting, and this Mark and I heard this when we were up at up at Nasdaq, was that the transactions tell a story, and as a former banker, it always really gripe me that the fraud department at the bank didn't look at my history. And basically, they could have stopped me. They could have slowed me down because not once in my 50 years or whatever, of all those years of banking, had I done wire transfers. And then all of a sudden, I'm doing $10,000, $20,000, $25,000 wires overseas. And I heard Tamia with the trafficking convention talk about the transaction tells the story yeah. All they have to do is look at our transactions. The transactions are telling the story. And I started thinking about that tonight. If I were to look at my journal and look at the dates of the transfers, there's always something emotional happening, something, some emergency happened when that money went out. And I've got the evidence. It's just the FBI couldn't use it. Yeah. And Debbie, I want to point out too, you know, that I think it's because stories uh, that you're sharing and other victims that it's getting out in the public more and more. And I could tell you, I'm now retired law enforcement, work for a financial institution, and there is a ton of training going on now from the tellers to the investigators to AML, BSA investigators that, yes, that sudden change in, in financial transaction or history is becoming those red flags and, and financial institutions are doing more, even retail. Uh, Mike uh, helped author uh, a, a video uh, for gift card scams and uh, that are typically now we're seeing a lot of the romance scams involve purchasing of gift cards. So it's because of stories like your that have changed the mindset about this. And I think you have more people out there looking at things and trying to prevent it or stop it sooner. So thank you for what you do. And and Debbie, I just want to leave with this. How can people find out more? Uh, How can people that are victims of this crime that haven't come forward, where can they get help? Uh, Where can they get the courage, you know, to report this and then also educate others? Because I think what you're doing now is, so much more important than, you know, what happened in this in this fraud. You survived it, and now you're out there sharing your message, sharing the story, and helping others. In my role as a director for the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams, I always encourage folks to go to our website, which is againstscams.org or romancescamsnow.com, and look at what we have there for victim education. And there's support groups. We have Facebook support groups where 
people come together once a week online, and it's very private, very secure, but women particularly will understand that they're not alone. And that's, that helps the healing process to know that you know, we encourage going to a trauma therapist to get it out and to, to share your story, but with trusted individuals, not with the world, not with those naysayers. And those naysayers could be family members. You have to be very, very careful in who you're sharing your story with and just realize it's a process, that there's grief involved, there's stages of anger involved. And we found that most victims fall into three categories. One are the deniers, and they'll never agree with you. The second ones are the haters, and they're out for vengeance. And then you have a third of them that are going to be the realists that want to recover and need help. And in a group setting, because a lot of people just think if I forget about it, it's going to go away. But in my case, if you try to forget about it, it'll eat you up from the inside out. And so for me, the speaking up, knowing that my story could be there to help one person either not get involved or understand that they are involved and they need to get out and realize that they're not alone in it, that it builds me up from the inside. It makes me a stronger person. And so I've been asked, if you could go back and not have this happen to you, would you do that? And I would probably say no. It has fundamentally changed me into a better person wow. and a stronger person because I realize that this isn't about me. This is about the woman that's sitting beside me that's not telling anybody what she's going through until she knows that I've been through it. And I'm that handhold because she's now brave enough to speak up. And to see someone go from the first week that they've uncovered the scam to a year from then or two years from then, the transition is phenomenal. And they realize that the money at the beginning was really important because most of them are older and retired. And they're looking at life going, how am I going to survive? To, I can do it. I can get another job. I can talk to family. I can do things on my own now, a little bit differently than I had expected. But how many of us have financial issues and we have to change course? So to know that there are other people out there that have been through it is a huge help in recovering. And that's my goal now is to get the story out there. And education is great, but typically doesn't work because people are thinking it's never going to happen to me. And I hope it doesn't happen to you, but what if it were to happen to your mother or your grandmother or your grandfather, your dad? You know, it's going to happen to everybody. It could happen to our children because they have access to our credit cards. And that's a whole other story. So I'm out there now to raise awareness from a victim-survivor point of view, and to we'll discuss this at another time, too, about trying to prevent that victim blame. And the media was very Absolutely. hard on me at the very beginning. Uh, that's a huge problem because they, you know, everybody takes this moral high ground. It, it couldn't happen to me. That was really stupid of you. Well, Yeah, until it happens to one of them or their family members, exactly. and then they'll understand. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Hey, Debbie, you never know. Maybe some of those deniers or haters are listening today, and we can convince them to to listen to you and what you offer and all the knowledge that you have to help people who have become victims and trying to help them out to, to go on with their lives. So we do appreciate what you're doing now. I think that's so helpful. And uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time today to come on the podcast. I really appreciate you guys being there to assist us in getting the word out because I can't do it by myself. So thank you both very much. 
And Debbie, we're going to get all your information on our show notes, but if you can, uh, before we sign off, if you could just tell us how the listeners can get a hold of you or the two organizations that you are a part of. Sure. They can email me at Debbie, D-E-B-B-Y, at thewomanbehindthesmile.com. My website is thewomanbehindthesmile.com, and I've last few years of podcasts and everything and shows are, are there if they want to see what the stories are all about. SCARS can be the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams. The best thing to do is to go to romancescamsnow.com or againstscams.org. And we have places there where you can report it, where you can sign up for support groups, and just the most incredible information available for victims and their family members on any kind of relationship scams. And again, that's any kind of relationship scams, not just dating romance scams, but words with friends and social media and all mm. that. Relationship scams can happen on every platform. And we've got a lot of information about the things that are happening today. All right, Debbie. And you know what? You're not only a best-selling author, advocate, you're not only a survivor, you're a hero in our eyes for what you're doing. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. And she was so gracious enough to give me a copy of her best-selling book. And the next time I see you, Debbie, I'm getting that autograph. So I forgot to ask you for the autograph on there. <laughs> so, But thank you again. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate being on the show. And Debbie, want to wish you happy holidays, Merry Christmas. I know it's the holiday season. And uh, again, like Mark said, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks very much. And, and Ashley, I'm gonna, I'll am gonna email Mark and, and Mike. I was talking with Tim McGinnis, Dr. McGinnis, the founder of SCARS, and we're actually interviewing uh, Brett Johnson. Again, he's part of our board of advisors. But we'd like to have a discussion about what can we do to stop this, you know? Yeah, and uh, yeah. you guys are available. We'd love to have you on the show because... We've got the former criminal, we've got the victims, and we'd really like to have law enforcement. So Let's do it. I see you know, a crossover event right now. I'm uh, looking forward to it. Uh, you count <laughs> us in. Wait, I just heard, huh? I heard you say that Mark got a copy of the book. I mean, uh, you know, I do work for the, the Inspection Service and Postal Service. If you can you send me a book in the mail, I'll give you, know, you some discount on the post. Just email me your addresses, and I'll send, I'll send you a, a, an autographed copy, and Mark, I'll fix yours. <laughs> all right, nice. all right. Thank you. Thanks, Debbie. Awesome. All right, folks, thanks for uh, tuning in to another podcast. Thank you to Debbie for coming on. And again, we wish everybody a safe holiday, fraud-free. Enjoy your family and loved ones and be vigilant because there's fraudsters out there that are willing to try and take your information and your money. So we wish you a happy rest of 2023. Mike and I will be signing off for the rest of the year. Don't worry. It's only a couple of days. Mike, where can our listeners find the IFCI Presents Protectors podcast? Well, they could go to Spotify. They could go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, wherever you subscribe to podcasts, you'll find us there. And Mike, you know what? You could listen to us in the shower. You could set it to wake you up in the morning. You could even, you know, when you're at work and nobody's you know, watching it, you could listen to the podcast as well. So anywhere you want, like I said, even driving in the car now, you could put it right on your, your radio in the car and listen to us. Hey, Mark, if somebody's got a topic for a future podcast, how do I get a hold of us? Mike, they could reach out to us by email. It's IAFCI 
protectorspodcast at gmail.com. Shoot us an email. We'd love to hear from you. You want to come on the show? You want to meet Mike in person? Get an autograph? Go out with him to dinner? It doesn't matter. We will get you whatever you want. All right. Well, folks, we're going to call it a wrap for 2023. We really enjoy our listeners. Thanks for being a part of it. And we look forward to being back in 2024 with new episodes. So I am Mark Solomon. I'll be signing off from Connecticut. And I'm Mike Carroll here in Chicago. We'll see you again. Well, folks, on behalf of Mike Carroll and myself and Modified Media and all of the IFCI, we want to thank you all for tuning into our podcast over the last two years. We wish you a very safe and fraud-free holiday, and we will see you back in 2024. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Remember, as you join the fight to protect our citizens, you're not alone. With more than 6,500 members from around the world, the men and women of the IAFCI are standing together with you. To learn more or to join the IAFCI, please visit our website at www.iafci.org. The Protectors Podcast is produced by Modified Media and is available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. The hosts and guest opinions are their own and do not reflect those of management, employers, or sponsors. Listeners are encouraged to contact law enforcement if they suspect being a victim of a crime.